Jeremiah 31. Last week we looked at our need for the Spirit of God. We found from the book of Deuteronomy that it is righteousness and obedience to God's law that leads to life and blessing. There is no way to obtain God's life and blessing without a full tank of righteousness. You cannot even lack one act of righteousness on your account if you hope to obtain eternal life and blessing from God. In Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy that we looked at last week and all of Israel's history teaches us that the law of God plus our own human effort to keep that law never produces righteousness. We cannot do it. We cannot obey God's law Human beings need more than the law of God if we are to obtain this righteousness that leads to life. Before we get started this morning, I want to examine with you the idea of covenants briefly. We need to think about what a covenant is. A covenant is a voluntary binding agreement between two or more parties. The relationship of parents to children, with all the responsibilities that children have to parents and parents to children, that is not actually a relationship of covenant. Why? Because the relationship of parents and children is not voluntary. You didn't get to choose your parents and they didn't get to choose you. The relationship is involuntary. But, but marriage is a different matter. You get to choose who you marry. And when you do, you enter into a voluntary relationship with another person. And there's certain terms to that relationship. And these terms, we usually express them in marriage vows that we take in a marriage ceremony. These vows are till death do us part. Think of a wedding ceremony. What does it look like? The groom makes vows to his bride. The bride makes vows and promises to her groom to love and to cherish, to be faithful to one another till death do us part. These are the terms of the covenant. They define what that relationship is going to look like. Both parties take vows. The responsibilities of the covenant go both ways. This is an arrangement that the ancient world was used to, that they were familiar with. In Jeremiah's day, there were covenants, covenants of marriage, covenants of political treaty. There were covenants between a king and his servants. The ancient world was familiar with covenants, and there were two different types of covenants that they would enter into. The first type of covenant is what they called a bilateral covenant. Now, that's a big word. Let's think about what a bilateral covenant is. Ancient men entered into voluntary agreements that were bilateral. You know what a bicycle is? There's two wheels. It's a bilateral covenant. There's, 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 there's vows and commitments that go both ways. A bilateral covenant was made between a superior like a king and an inferior like his servant. These covenants take the form of a, if you will do this, then I will do this for you formula. 
The superior would say, if you will serve me, then I will give you protection, or I will supply your housing, or I will give you land to cultivate, to obtain crops. Both parties to the covenant, the superior and the inferior, would swear to one another. And they would perform a sign of the covenant, such as the slaying of an animal, cutting it in half. This sign would remind them both that they had obligations to one another. They had responsibilities they must fulfill. But the critical element of this bilateral covenant was this. The success of the covenant rested on the ability of the inferior to fulfill his responsibilities to the superior. If the inferior, the servant, didn't do what he was supposed to do, the king did not have to fulfill his responsibilities to the servant. And this is the kind of covenant that we saw in the book of Deuteronomy last week. Here are my laws, Israel, says God. Obey them. If you obey me, I'll give you life. If you obey me, I will pour out life upon you. I'll bless you. I'll give you abundant life. If you do not keep my covenant... If you disregard my laws, if you go your own way and follow the gods of the nations and worship them, then I will send upon you all of these curses. I'm not obligated to bless you if you will not obey my laws. In other words, how God responded to Israel depended on how she responded to God. If Israel did not keep her obligations, God's curses would fall upon them. And so the blessings of the covenant depended on whether or not Israel obeyed. In other words, that covenant had conditions. You had to keep the conditions if you wanted the blessings of the covenant. And the history of Israel that we looked at last week proves that they couldn't do it. They could not keep the, the covenant of the Lord. And even before that covenant is put in force and ratified, Moses is already predicting that Israel will depart from the Lord, that the curses will fall, and Israel will go into captivity. This was the bilateral covenant. In the bilateral covenant, the blessings the superior has to offer are available only to those who perform well and who obey. But there was another kind of covenant that was familiar to ancient peoples. It was the unilateral covenant. You know what a unicycle is? It's a bicycle with one wheel, right? A unilateral covenant, you can think of one. One what? The unilateral covenant was also a voluntary agreement between two parties, one a superior and one an inferior. But in this case, there was no, if you do this, then I will do this formula. The covenant does not include responsibilities for both parties. Instead, it includes responsibilities and obligations of only one party. One party promises he will do for the other party a certain thing, but there's no corresponding obligations for the other party to perform. In other words, one party commits himself to doing a certain thing for the other one with no strings attached. Regardless of what you do, I will do this for you. The one making the covenant pledges himself regardless of how the other party performs. And this is an entirely different type of covenant. And this is what we see in Jeremiah 31 verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
It won't be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That old covenant is what we looked at last week. It was a bilateral covenant. Israel, you must obey if you want my blessings. God says, now I'm going to make a new kind of covenant. This covenant that I will make with Israel is not going to be like that old covenant. It will be a covenant that will be unilateral. And the promises that God makes here to Israel in this new covenant are very, very significant. Because Jeremiah writes this prophecy from Egypt. When he writes this prophecy, he is not in the land that God promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Why? Because Israel has sinned. God has sent the curses upon them. They have been driven out of the land. Jeremiah is in Egypt because the first covenant was a bilateral covenant. And from Egypt he writes, God says, I'll make a new covenant. It won't be like that old one. It'll be a different kind of covenant. From Egypt we hear the promise of a new covenant. Now God calls this covenant, look with me at verse 31, I will make a new covenant as opposed to an old one. What is new about the new covenant? And that's what we want to look at for the remainder of our time this morning. It's important though at this point before we get started on what is different about these two covenants, the covenant that God made with Moses and Israel and this new covenant that Jeremiah Promises. It's important to stop and look at what's the same between them. What was the purpose for both of these covenants? Why did God give them? What was he trying to achieve and accomplish? The two covenants have exactly the same purpose. God is trying to accomplish the same thing by giving both of these covenants. God's intention in both of them was to create a people that would be his people. Listen to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. This is God's purpose for the Old Covenant. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God has brought these people out of Egypt. For what purpose? Why did he deliver them? It was so that they would be a people, his people. Amongst all the nations of the earth, this would be God's people. And so he went down into Egypt and redeemed a people through ten plagues and brought them out to himself. What was the purpose of the new covenant? Look at Jeremiah 31 verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Both covenants aim to create a people that are God's people, that are his unique possession. The purpose for which God enacts both covenants is the same. But now we need to consider some ways in which the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are actually very different. Okay? If God is to have a people 
who belong to him, who are his people. What is that people going to have to be like? If God is a holy God, that people has got to be a holy people. Not like all the nations, they've got to be a holy people. And that's the first way that the two covenants differ is in how God would make this people holy. It's one thing to gather a group of people together. It's another thing to make them a holy people. How did the old covenant intend to make a holy people? In the old covenant, God aimed to make the people holy by giving them commandments to obey. The commandments were intended to shape Israel into a holy nation. A nation that was unlike any of the other nations on the earth. The commandments were written on tables of stone. They were inscribed in stone. They were unalterable. They were unbending. This is what God demanded or else they would not be his people. The covenant that they would be his people and he would be their God then could only proceed as long as Israel was a holy nation. If she was not a holy nation, if she was like all the other nations on the earth, God must cast her off because he is a holy God and his people must be holy as he is. And so Israel could enjoy a relationship with God only if she obeyed God's laws. The law was a reflection of God's own character and any individual who obeyed God's laws was being holy as God was holy. It was keeping the law that Israel, it was by keeping the law that Israel would show both that God was holy and also herself be holy as God is holy. And then they could enjoy fellowship together, a holy God and a holy people together in one covenant. And thus, in a very real sense, God's desire that Israel be his special people depended on whether or not Israel obeyed. If she did not, she would not be God's people. This is what we won't read it this morning for time, but this is what Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 5 through 8 says. If Israel transgressed the covenant, the relationship would be severed, all the blessings would no longer be Israel's, she would be cast out of the land. It all rested then on Israel's ability to obey. I will be your God if you will be my people first. If you will obey me, then you can be my people and I will be your God. The covenant then is bilateral. If you do this, then you may be my people. How does God intend to create a holy people in the new covenant? Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God promises to write his law upon the hearts of his people. I will write it on your hearts and then you will be my people and then I will be your God. When God says, look at verse 33, when God says, I will write it on your hearts, that actually sounds a lot like what we looked at last week in Deuteronomy, doesn't it? 
Remember Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 18? The word of my commandment is near you. It's in your mouth. My commandments are in your heart, God says to Israel, so that you can do it. The word I command you is in your heart, God says to Moses and the people. God's telling them that his commandments are right there. They know them. They're in their hearts. They're in their mouth. They can repeat them to their children. They can read them aloud on the stone tablets. And this means then that whatever God is promising here in the new covenant, when he says, I'll write my laws on your hearts, has got to be different than what happened in the old covenant, where God says, they're in your hearts. So what does God mean when he promises Israel in the new covenant, I'll write them on your hearts? In the old covenant, when God said, they're in your hearts, what was he saying to Israel? You know them, O Israel. I've told you my laws. Now go and do them. You know them. In the new covenant, when God says, I'll write them on your hearts, he's got to mean more than simply knowing God's laws. What is God saying when he promises to write the laws on their hearts? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Love the Lord with all your heart. These words shall be on your heart. God commands Israel to love him. If they love him, all his words will be on their hearts. And what we see here is what we saw last week in Deuteronomy. True obedience to God begins in the heart. It begins with a heart of love. Only when the heart was filled with love for God would the heart overflow in obedience to the commandments of God. Mere external obedience to the law is not actually obedience. Loveless obedience is called legalism. Doing the right thing without loving the God who told you to do it is rebellion and disobedience in God's sight. So Israel may have the commands in their heart. They may know what they're supposed to do. They may remind each other of what God requires. They may examine those stone tablets and read God's law. They might talk about God's law to their children. The priests and the prophets might remind them constantly of God's commands. But more was required for obedience to the law than simply knowing what God said. True obedience to God's law involved a love for God and his laws in their hearts. Obedience to the commandments was supposed to flow from a heart of love that treasured the commandments and delighted in the God who gave them. They must flow from a heart of love for God who has revealed himself in the commandments. Israel had the commandments in the heart, but Israel did not have the love for God in the heart as well. And perhaps the easiest way to say it is that Israel had the commands in the heart, but not the heart to love the commands or to love the God who gave the commands. And that meant that obedience was not possible. They could do it right on the outside, but it was not true obedience unless it sprung from a heart of love for God. 
The bare commandments may have been in their hearts, but the love for God was missing. They did not delight in God or in his commandments. And Jeremiah himself gives us a fascinating statement about this in Jeremiah 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablets of their heart. Jeremiah is not saying here, on Judah's heart, there is a list of all the sins they've committed. When he says, the sins of Judah are written on their hearts with an iron pen. He's not saying, yeah, I wrote out all the things that they've done wrong on their heart. So that all you've got to do is look at their heart and you can see the list of everything that they did day by day that was wrong. Instead, what God's saying is that sin itself is engraved in their hearts. Listen to just a few verses later, Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? This was the state of Judah's heart. It was supposed to be a heart that possessed God's law and which also loved the God who gave the law. It was supposed, Israel was supposed to delight to do God's laws. Oh, how I love thy law, the psalmist says. Instead, it was sin that was written on Judah's heart. And that is what Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. The heart that Israel really needed to obey the law was absent. A heart of love for God that delighted to obey his laws was missing. Instead, it was sin written on their hearts. And then is it any wonder then that the old covenant failed? Israel needed a new heart. This is what God means when he promises to Israel in the new covenant that he will write his laws upon their hearts. And Ezekiel actually fills this out for us, what God means right here in verse 33 when he says, I'll write my law on your heart. This is what Ezekiel says about that. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. It will not be a heart of stone such as they have now, a heart that is engraven with sin. Instead, it will be a heart of flesh, soft, warm, no longer hard. Now it will be a heart to love God with warmth and affection. And Jeremiah says that God will write his laws upon that new heart. In view of what we've looked at in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, this can only mean that God is going to put in Israel a heart that loves him, that loves his laws, that delights in them, that desires to do them. The new covenant will create this. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written on my heart. Psalm 40, verse 8. That's what Israel was missing. That is what the new covenant promises. How will God perform this work in the human heart to bring about this love for God? To cause human beings who are sinners to love the law that condemns them? How will God bring about this obedience? And now it would be good for us to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 How is God going to create this new heart? How is he going to write his laws upon Israel's heart? 
How is he going to make Israel love the Lord their God? Verse 27, Ezekiel 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the new covenant, God has not set aside the requirement for obedience. Israel must obey. They must walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. What is new about the new covenant is not that there are no laws. What is new about the new covenant is that God is going to make obedience possible. In fact, he's going to cause it to happen. By the omnipotent power of God, he will produce the obedience that is required. He will perform open heart surgery, removing the heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, putting his spirit within them, causing his people then to walk in his ways. God himself will bring about the obedience to his laws that is required for the covenant. God himself will meet the requirement for obedience and righteousness. He will cause his people to walk in his ways. Old covenant, commandments, Israel must do them. New covenant, commandments, God will cause Israel to walk in his ways. Obedience is not only possible, it is inevitable. It will happen. But in neither, com- neither covenant did God imagine that his people would obey him perfectly. In the old covenant, what was required if you broke the law of God? Listen to Leviticus 5. If anyone sins, he shall bear his iniquity. Verse 6. He shall bring to the Lord as compensation for his sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Then he shall offer the second, that'd be the second lamb, for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed and he shall be forgiven. Notice several things about what God says here. You're familiar with the sacrificial system. You sin and you bring a lamb. And offer it up. First of all, God says sins must be atoned for. They can't just be swept under the rug. They must be atoned for. There must be adequate accounting made for sin and the appropriate recompense, the appropriate payment made. In the case of every sin, death is the penalty. And every person who owed God for sin owed God his very life. In this case, though, the life of the lamb would substitute for his own life. The lamb would die and the sinner could go free. Atonement was made and the sinner was forgiven. He was released from his liability to the penalty that God required for his sin. Second thing to notice is who brought the lamb? In the old covenant, it was the sinner. If you sinned, You had to get your lamb and go to the temple for it to be offered if you wanted to be forgiven. If you did not, you would not be forgiven. For the sinner to be right with God, the sinner must take the first step. This was the provision made for sins under the old covenant. What are the provisions for sin in the new covenant? The new covenant makes provisions for sin. 
The provision is in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. You can stay in Ezekiel 36 or you can turn back. It's up to you. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. God will not remember their sins against them. They may sin, but he will not exact from them the price, the penalty for their sin. How is this supposed to work? How is it that God can forgive sins? Isaiah 53 gives us the answer. I want you to just listen to several startling verses in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him. We thought that he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted for his own sins. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Here we see the idea of a substitute. He is carrying our griefs and sorrows. He is pierced not for his transgressions, for ours in our place. Just like the old covenant, sins must be atoned for. Someone's got to be pierced. Someone must bear the grief and the sorrow of sin. But under the new covenant, they are atoned for by the substitution of his life for our life. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. By whose? Listen to the dramatic difference between the old covenant and the new. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Here is the astonishing thing about the new covenant. In the old covenant, if Israel sinned, they must bring the sacrifice to make propitiation and atonement. In the new covenant, Paul tells us that God brought the sacrifice. He set forth his own son to be the propitiation. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God put his son to grief. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Behind that statement, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all is... What happened in the Old Covenant? The Lamb was brought. The worshiper placed his head upon the hand of the Lamb, transferring his sin. He laid his hand upon the Lamb, transferring his sin and its guilt to the Lamb so that the Lamb perished with the sin upon it and no longer upon the sinner. In the Old Covenant, I laid my sin upon the Lamb. In the New Covenant, the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. It is God's work from start to finish. And we have no part to play. And now he says, I will forgive your transgressions. I will remember your iniquities against you no more. 
And thus, the new covenant is a unilateral covenant in every way. The provision for holiness, the provision for sin. God is the one who does it all. And so the new covenant is unilateral. And I want to read you two passages, two new covenant passages. And I want you to listen closely for something. I want you to listen for the if-then formula. If you do this, then I will do this. Okay, you listen for it. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of, brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave you to your fathers and you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Where are the if-then formulas? If you do this, then I'll do this. There's none in the new covenant. Not one. The only actor in the new covenant is the sovereign God of heaven. This new covenant embodies his intentions and his plans for us. It is a covenant then that is unbreakable. Can you break the new covenant? Not unless the God of heaven dies. It is unbreakable because there are no provisions for us to break. There's nothing we can do to alter God's intention to do these things. Nothing will change God's course. The new covenant does not depend upon human will. It does not depend upon human work. It does not depend upon human effort or running or willing. Paul tells us in Romans 11, everything flows from God's will. Everything flows from God's work. Everything flows from God's promise. Israel's failure will not derail the new covenant because it doesn't depend upon their faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness, His will and His work alone. And in this way, the new covenant is not like the covenant God made with Moses at Mount Sinai. This is a cataclysmic shift. This is earth-shattering. This will bring in a whole new world. This is the newness of the promise of the new covenant. But we need to note one more thing about the new covenant. I want you to see, me, see with me what the central promise of the new covenant is. We've looked at a lot of them. Forgiveness of sins. Walking in His ways. Being brought to dwell in the land. Becoming part of God's people. What will bring about this cataclysmic shift? What will turn the world upside down so that a new world order is introduced? 
What will bring about this shift in the way that God creates and relates to and sanctifies and makes holy his people? What will bring in the new age of the new covenant? How will we know that this new covenant is now in force and operating? How will we know who is a member of this new covenant community? And I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. What is the center of the new covenant? What is the main thing that God promised? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. After saying that, then he adds... I will remember their sin and their lawless deeds no more. In verses 16 and 17, we find part of Jeremiah 31 quoted. We just read those verses back in Jeremiah 31, and here the author of Hebrews quotes them. God promises to put his laws in our hearts, write them on, their, write them on our minds. How is that going to happen? This is the covenant that I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will do it. I will put my laws on their hearts. Who is the I? Look at verse 15. The Holy Spirit says, I will do it. What is the central promise of the new covenant I will give you my spirit and the spirit says I'll do all the rest I will put my laws on their hearts I will write them on their minds I will remember their sins their lawless deeds no more the center of the new covenant is I will put my spirit in you and having given us his spirit, everything else falls into place. The spirit is the one who does everything in the new covenant. The gift of the spirit is the means by which God fulfills all the other promises. As we look at all of the other promises of the new covenant, we find that they are all accomplished and fulfilled and performed in us by the work of God's spirit. Who applies to us the benefits of Christ's redemption. And this means that the promise of the Spirit is the central promise of the New Covenant. And that's why we find so many passages in the Old Testament that call our attention to the fact that the new world that's coming will be the world of the Spirit. Listen to Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. The Spirit will be poured out from on high, and the wilderness will become a fruitful field, and the fruitful field will be deemed a forest. Here, it is the coming of the Spirit that causes Israel to blossom for the first time in history. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. It shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Here, the coming of the Spirit turns Israel into witnessing servants that God has redeemed them to be. 
Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Moses said to Joshua, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, that God would put his spirit upon all of them. What would happen if God did? Ezekiel 39, verse 29. I will not hide my face anymore from Israel. God says, I've turned my face away from them for their sin. But now he says, I'm not going to do that anymore. I will not hide my face from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Why are we God's people and he is our God? Because he's put his spirit upon us. God tells Israel throughout the Old Testament that he's hidden his face from them because of their sins. But the coming of the spirit will change all of that. It will be an error when God lifts up the light of his countenance upon Israel and gives them peace. It will be the year of God's favor. Ezekiel 36, 27, when God pours out the spirit, we will walk in his ways and be careful to obey his laws. And thus, in promising the spirit, God is promising a whole new world. This is going to fundamentally change the course of human history. And this is what Luke and Acts are in the scripture to tell us. God's salvation will come. Read Luke 1 and 2. It has come in Jesus Christ. But he returns to heaven. But the Spirit comes. And it goes to all the world. The Spirit is poured out upon all flesh. And what is the result? The result is a whole new world. It is the creation of a whole new people. It is the beginning point of a new order of world history. The Spirit will come. Israel will obey. She will be God's people. He will forgive their iniquity. And they will be a people for God's own possession. So I want to summarize what we've seen this morning with five points. When the Spirit comes... It will be the beginning of a new era in world history. You know, this is what Paul says over and over and over and over and over again in his writings. Paul divides all of his human history into two eras. There was the time before the Spirit came. That was the time of the law, when we lived in the flesh. And then the Spirit comes. Now we live in the era of the promise, the era of the Spirit. There's law and spirit in Paul's worldview. When the spirit comes, it's a whole new world that he brings. The second point is that when the spirit comes, he will bring with him all the blessings of the new covenant. Whenever he comes, at whatever point in history that is, now all of the blessings of the new covenant are available through the spirit. Christ has died He has ascended to heaven for what purpose? To receive the promised Holy Spirit and to pour him out. It is by the Spirit that we are united to Christ and become partakers of all of the benefits of Christ's redemption. The third point is the central promise of the new covenant or the promise that ensures the success of the whole thing is the promise of the Spirit. That's what we're waiting for. When the Spirit comes... Now we have the new covenant, but not until. Fourth, the Spirit comes to introduce an entirely new way of living into the picture. Old era, law plus human effort. Righteousness? No. 
New era? Law, spirit causing us to walk. Righteousness? Yes. The spirit brings a whole new way of serving God. Go read Romans chapter 7 verse 6. Now we serve God no longer in the old way of the law. Now we serve God in the new way by the spirit. Fifth. Having the Spirit is what it means to live in this new era. To be a participant in the new covenant is to possess the Spirit. You can't, ha- can't be part of the new covenant unless you've got the Spirit, if that's the center of the thing. That means that life in the Spirit is what it means to live as a Christian. Possessing God's Holy Spirit and living in the Spirit is what it means to be a Christian. It does not mean living according to God's law. Living according to God's law is not what it means to be a Christian. Paul says we do not serve God in the law anymore. We serve God in the Spirit. We who have the Spirit now have entered into this new world. We have received the promise of the Spirit. And living in that new world is what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks as we look at what it means to live in the Spirit. A couple of closing thoughts. Our salvation was purchased by Christ on the cross. It is purchased, but it is applied and poured out upon us by the Spirit. All of the benefits of Christ's redemption remain in Him until God gives us His Spirit to bring the benefits of His redemption to us. How we ought to thank God for giving us his precious spirit. Without Christ, there would be no salvation. Without the spirit, we would not possess that salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes to us through Christ alone. His work of salvation is by grace alone. We receive it by faith alone. All of it to the glory of of God alone. That is why God made the covenant work the way that he did. Lord God, thank you for these things. And now as we observe the table, the Lord's table, I pray that you would grant us renewed faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and your promises in the new covenant. We ask these things in Christ's name.